Levi, I'm glad you're sitting up front. I love you. <laughs> How are you guys doing tonight? Doing good? Yeah. Doing all right? Doing all right? It's a Monday, but it's a Tuesday, so I understand. Tonight, we're going to continue our journey of talking about the different parables of Jesus. We remember that the focus of these parables isn't just to ask, how does this apply to my life? But more importantly, what does this tell us about the character of God, his son, Jesus, and his Holy Spirit? So keep that in the back of your mind as we go through. Not just, you know, where do I fit in this story, but where is God's heart throughout the whole entirety of this parable? And so we're going to look at a parable that has more content devoted to it than all of the other parables in the Bible. This parable has an appearance in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And if you add up all the verses dedicated to it in those three accounts, it's more than all the other parables combined. And so we know that this is something that's important, you know. You know, when you're told something once, your mom says, like, hey, like, you know, it's time for dinner. You've got to come, you know, come down. And you're like, okay, whatever. i got a few more minutes. When she tells you that second time and she's like, like, hey, dinner's ready. Get down here if you like to eat and not starve. You're like, okay, whatever. It's only the second time she's told me. That third time, though, and she just yells and she's, she's up there and she's mad. You know by that point you've probably already lost out on dessert and TV privileges afterwards. I don't know if that's still a thing, but it was for me. So I knew that I had a little bit of time. But the third time she told me it was really important that I got my butt where she wanted me to go. And so with this passage, with this uh, example in scripture, we know that it's important. This is actually a unique parable in that Jesus explains it to the disciples. He pulls them aside later after the crowds are gone and he says, hey, like, you need to get this one. If you don't understand this parable, then you're not going to understand any of them. And so we know that this is very important for us. If we don't understand this parable, we won't understand anything that Jesus is teaching us. So let us pray before we get into it. Lord Jesus, I pray that you soften our hearts, Lord. You prepare our hearts to receive this message, that you examine our conscience, Lord. You examine our motives, and you see who we truly are, Lord Jesus, before you, Lord. And I pray that you can touch our hearts in a way that maybe we've never seen your character before, Lord, that we can focus on your goodness and your grace in this passage of Scripture, and that we can walk out of here understanding a little bit more about you, your Son, Jesus, and your Holy Spirit. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we're going to start in Matthew chapter 13, verses 2 through 9. Like I said, this is in a couple other Gospels as well, but we're just going to look in Matthew's account. So starting in Matthew 13, verse 2, it says this, Such large crowds gathered around him, Jesus, that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow, but when the sun came up, the plants were scorched. Sounds like San Angelo weather. And the plants withered because they had no root. Root. I don't know. Other seeds fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. And still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And so as we look at this particular parable, let us not fall into just the common practice of which of the soils that we think we are. You know, we all have a tendency to do that. And we will look at the different soils and what they mean. But again, we want to discuss the perspective of the sower. The sower in this instance is God. And he sows his seed on all different types of soil. 
Is this because the sower God is, is wasteful or reckless or is he a bad farmer who doesn't understand what seeds need in order to grow? Surely not. We're talking about God here. The sower sows his seed everywhere because he is just, fair, and kind to all people everywhere. So let us not be like the Pharisee from last week's parable. If you remember when Scroggins was telling us about the Pharisee and the publican, the tax collector, the Pharisee was so focused on his own righteousness, and he said, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner over there, talking about the tax collector. He was judging the tax collector. Meanwhile, the tax collector said, I'm such a sinner, Lord, have mercy on me, for I have sinned. The Pharisee thought he was better and more righteous, but really, the tax collector was the one who was near to God's heart. And so let's not judge the sower for spreading his seed on different types of soil because we think we're more righteous than them. Let's not say, I'm like the good soil, or I'm not like that bad soil, because that's not the focus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer reminds us that there are two main trees in the Garden of Eden. When you look in Genesis 2, you see the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve had to choose between having life and having the knowledge to judge good and evil. We know that they made the wrong choice. And we saw last week it's not our place to judge good and evil, but rather to live a life of humility instead of a life of pride. And so with that lens, this parable doesn't become one of judging the sower for seemingly wasting seed or judging the types of soil for being bad, but it becomes one of joy and thanksgiving that the sower is so generous that he'll sow his seed on all types of soil, that we all have a chance everywhere to come back and grow good seed. That even amidst thorny and rocky soil in a a thorny and rocky world, God is still sowing life-giving seed everywhere because he wants all people to return back to him. Like, it's not as if, it seems like God doesn't understand the rules that we live by. And what I mean by this is sometimes we say things like, come on, God, that's rocky soil. Don't waste your time over there. Or, man, those people are so selfish. They don't deserve to get that blessing. I, I do. Man, I'm a much better Christian than they are. How come they got the nice car and the nice home, and I'm over here driving an O2 Ford Focus? Wow, wow, I would treat my girlfriend so much better than that guy treats his girlfriend. Why don't I get to be in the relationship instead of that guy? Oh, that's enough examples, I think. I think we get it. But see, God doesn't operate that way. That's not how he looks at things. God scatters, scatters seed for all people everywhere and says, I will give you a chance, and I'll give you a chance. I'll give you a chance, even if those people don't deserve it. Even if we, myself included, don't deserve it. He still gives us the seed of his word, and he gives us a chance. Let's turn back a couple hundred years from this parable of Jesus, and we're going to look at the book of the prophet Isaiah. Let's pick up in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 10 through 13. Isaiah 55, verse 10. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign 
that will endure forever. Now, Israel, Isaiah's time and the people of Israel at the time, it was rough. It was really rough. He was writing to people who were stuck in exile in Babylon, and these were people who were literally uprooted from their homes, and they were forced to live in terrible conditions amidst a, a terribly ungodly culture, perhaps shades of today, that was very different from their own culture. But Isaiah is telling them that the mountains are going to sing and the trees are going to clap. Is, is he kidding? Is Isaiah unaware of the gravity of the situation? Come on, Isaiah, look at the world around you. There's, there's no joy here. The mountains will not sing. The trees are not going to clap. Is he unaware of the gravity of the situation and the awful conditions the people were living in? Mm. Let me tell you, Isaiah was woke. He knew what was going on. I mean, he's a prophet of the Lord. Like, he had quite an accurate perspective of the situation. But yet he doesn't point us to the wrongs of the Babylonians and the severity of the Israelites' condition. He doesn't focus on the awful wrongdoings that were plaguing his people, even though there were plenty to choose from. In this particular passage, he doesn't even talk about right and wrong. Instead, what does he do? He points God's people to joy. He says, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. And it seems a strange command. It seems a strange promise for the people at that time. And it might seem a strange promise for us today in the conditions of the world around us. But God's word says that we will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains will sing and the trees will clap. What if we didn't judge others when they had a different view from us? What if we didn't judge them when they make mistakes and sin? And, and what if we, instead of being happy that we're not as bad as those people, as bad as the tax collector, what if their sins broke our hearts like they break God's heart? What if instead of rejoicing when someone else has a folly so that we look better and we're elevated, what if we wept for their wrongdoing because God's heart is broken whenever sin occurs? Because we should never, as Christians, fall victim to comparing ourselves to others. Because comparison is the thief of joy. This is so important. Comparison is the thief of joy. Remember that the next time you think lowly of someone because of what they're doing, what they're saying, what they put on social media. What's the point of comparing? It only harbors bitterness. It only harbors self-righteousness. Then we're like the Pharisee. What if we instead chose joy? Instead of being frustrated at them, what if we looked at their countenance and said, look, that's a unique picture of Jesus that will never be seen again. That kind of indiscriminate love, that kind of just arbitrary sowing of a seed is what God did for us. Let us do the same for others. What if we left that judgment of right and wrong to God, the only perfect judge, and chose joy over judgment? That would change the world. Let's look back to the parable in Matthew 13 and try to figure out what the problem is in this instance. I know that in, in science experiments, you're always trying to test your hypothesis. You've got your control and your constant and something, something, independent variables. Raf can teach me. Um, you've got the different types of things, and you're trying to isolate the problem or isolate the variable to figure out what's going to happen. And so in this instance, we want to isolate the problem in this parable. We know there's something wrong 
in this situation. Three out of the four soils don't produce a good crop. But we know there's nothing wrong with the sower. It's God. We know there's nothing wrong with the seed. It's the word of God. So it's got to be the problem in the soil. And people can often say, who knows why this happened or who knows why that one didn't grow. But, but a gardener would know exactly why. And Jesus is speaking to an agrarian society. They, they would understand this parable on a level that even I wouldn't. A gardener would know the problem is that someone didn't take the time to properly tend to the soil. There's nothing wrong with the seed, nothing wrong with the sower. It's simply that the soil was not properly prepared to receive the seed of the word of God. So in verse 18, Jesus is directly explaining the parable to the disciples. Matthew 13, verse 18. Listen then what the parable of the sower means. He's like, guys, you didn't get it. You need to get this one. It's real important. He doesn't do this anywhere else in scripture. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Verse 20, the seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it, and this is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. So we see the four types of soil, three bad and one good. So let's just start. Let's start with the first one, the seed and the soil along the path. And so this is what's called like wayside ground. This is a, a compact walkway. This is a path that has just been trampled on over and over and over again. So the soil is very hard and nothing can get in. It's so hard that the seed just sits on the top. Birds come and snatch it away. The seed can never even get in the ground. Jesus says the evil one comes along and snatches away the seed so that no one can believe and be saved. So our question is, how does soil get like this? We know allegorically in the parable that it gets like that because people are walking all over it. But in our lives, how, how does someone's heart become so callous that even the life-giving word of God can't penetrate the ground? Well, there's two ways that people's heart can become hardened. It can become hardened through the harshness of life. We can call that street hardness. And the other way they can be hardened is by hearing the word of God time and time again and thinking that they've got it thinking they know it all already and have it already figured out. And they've heard the gospel so many times, and we can call this religious hardness. And this is the one that's even harder than street hardness. This religious hardness of heart is what Jesus dealt with over and over again with the Pharisees. They were what we would call the legal Christians. On the outside, their soil, their hearts looked good, but on the inside, it was so packed tight that Jesus' true message could not get through to them. They just kept trying to trap him. They didn't even listen when he was actually preaching. They followed God like it was a checklist. They went to the temple. They prayed. They gave their money. They honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. They had a legal attitude and treated him like a duty, but there was no real love behind it. And the scariest thing is they thought they got it. They thought that they were walking with God. They thought they were doing everything necessary to be holy and righteous, but they never actually got it. 
because there was no love there. A long time ago, I had a friend who lived in another country, and he needed to get inoculated against smallpox. He was, he was there, and there's something very important, uh, smallpox that doesn't really affect us, but he needed to get inoculated against it. And so he showed up, and he figured they were going to take this, this big needle, and they were going to inject him with some watered-down strain of smallpox. You know, like when you get the flu vaccine, they give you a little bit of the flu to help keep you from getting it worse in the future. And so he showed up, and what they did is they took some glass, and they, you know, they scratched his arm. You guys know what I'm talking about? Like, have you ever had, like, like an allergy test or something like that? They'll, like, they'll, like, scratch your arm pretty good. It's not, like, the worst thing, but then they took this bag of goo, and they squeezed the stuff out into it and shoved it in the scratch. <laughs> and that, I mean, it hurts. That's, that sounds terrible. It's like, I mean, they're, like, rub some dirt in it, you know what I mean? It's like, this is, like, viral dirt like this is you know what i mean they put it directly in there and then they slap a band-aid on it and said you're good to go there was no big needle or anything and he, he was kind of confused a little bit perturbed but he went home and the next day he wakes up he's got a headache fever he's not feeling great he's got a little mark on his arm and it's like a size of a marble and then later as the day progresses it gets a little bit bigger a little bit bigger he got a golf ball size the next day it's a mark this big on his arm like an orange <laughs> that's pretty terrifying. That's like when they're like, hey, call your doctor if you feel, yes, call your doctor. <laughs> but, but a couple days later, he was fine. And what turns out that they did is they didn't give him smallpox. You can't just give people smallpox in an inoculation. It's too dangerous. Even in a watered-down version, even a less potent version wouldn't work. It's still too dangerous. So what they did is they gave him cowpox. They give him cowpox. And so what happens is when your body receives the cowpox, you fight through it, it sucks for a little bit, you got a fever and a headache, but then you're fine. And then you are effectively immune against receiving smallpox. Your body is tricked into it because cowpox and smallpox, your body reacts the same way to receiving them. So by giving him the lesser thing, he was inoculated, protected, safe from ever getting smallpox. And that's the thing with religious hardness. We think we have the real thing, the real gospel, but we don't. We just have something that kind of looks like it, but it lacks the potency. It's not the real gospel message. We've just been inoculated against it. And so when the real word of God comes on the soil of our heart, we're already hardened against it because we think we've gotten it already. And we can't let it in. And that's what happened with the Pharisees in Jesus' day. And that's what happens to people in our day. That's what happens to us. We think we've got it. We think we've figured it out. We've heard it. John 3.16. I know. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Jesus is good. God is good all the time. But what does that actually mean? Are you actually living out the true gospel? There's a lot more to it than that. And it requires obedience on our part. The second type of soil is the rocky soil. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. This soil sprouts up quickly, so it actually has time to grow, unlike the last one. But then it withers away when real trouble hits. This is what's known as the carnal Christian. And many of us, myself included, fall into this category from time to time. When asked if we believe in Jesus, we say, of, of course I believe in Jesus. Of course I'm a Christian. It's the Bible Belt. This is Texas. Have you accepted him as your personal savior? Yes, yes, you know. But then our actions don't back it up. 
We are clearly still living to please ourselves, and we shy away from doing things we don't want to do. Or maybe we're still willing to serve and love others, but we do so because we hope we have a reward, whether from society or whether in eternity in heaven. You see, the distinction doesn't lie in what we do, but it lies in the why we are doing it. Why are you doing what you are doing? Why are you a Christian? And God cares about why exceedingly more than he cares about what we are doing. Pastor Landon mentioned this in his wonderful sermon this past week. This past Sunday, he said, quoting 1 Samuel 16, 7, says, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I've memorized this verse, and I think about it often, to help guard myself against being a carnal Christian. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. He does not look at how often the person serves or how often they went to church or how loud their prayers were, how many times they preached. What does God look at? He looks at the heart, the why. Because you can have the what and not have the right why. God sees the heart. And this is the essential difference. The true Christian loves God with the unselfish love of trust and obedience because he sees God's character to be so supremely worthy. And the carnal Christian loves God with a feeling of, you know, buddy-buddy, like, I think, you know, God's my friend, and he can help me and, and make me happy, and maybe I get to go to heaven at the end of it. Of course I'm going to follow God. Yeah, I'm a Christian. But that's selfishness, and that is sin. It's using God and the provision of his son, Jesus Christ, for your purely selfish motives. And God will not be mocked. People might be fooled, but God will not be. And he sees right to the heart. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. If things get hard because the conditions of following the word of God, then the carnal Christian will not last. They will look to something easier that provides a greater earthly comfort and security, but doesn't require true sacrifice and obedience to God. And that's it. In my opinion, this is the most insidious, the most prevalent, the most dangerous type of soil that we see in the world today. And Satan is thrilled because it blurs the line between truly following Jesus and just simply living for ourselves and our selfishness. It can often be hard to distinguish between a person serving God out of love for him and serving God out of selfish reasons. On the outside, they may look similar or even the same, but God sees the heart and he knows why we do what we do. The third soil is the thorny soil. This probably sounds so bleak, but I believe it's important. The thorny soil is the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. And just like the last soil, some growth does occur. The seed grows for a little bit. The word of God reaches down into the soil, but soon enough, other plants come in and choke out the good seed. The worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth cause the plant to be unfruitful. And this time, we can see the good plant is growing. We can see it, but we also see the thorns and brambles start to shoot up. We can root for the good plant, no pun intended, but it soon becomes obvious that the thorns are winning and the good plant is not getting enough sunlight or water or care. And the thorns and other plants choke it out. And they represent the things of this earth that distract us from the word of God. 
The scripture specifically mentions the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth. And I believe these things plague all of us to a certain degree, if we are honest. I believe we too often worry about what the future might hold, how much money we'll have, what others think about us, or even more strongly, do others even like us? And these worries, these cares about earthly things and not eternal things, lead us to neglect the word of God. We turn to other solutions. We try to figure out why we're feeling this way. There's an, a void in our heart. There's something where we're like, okay, we've got to fix this problem. I don't want to feel like this anymore. And it's like, you know, when you've got a toddler and you've got the different shapes, you've got the star, the square, the circle, the triangle, hexagon, I don't know. And you've got the different shapes and the blocks, and you're trying, you know, their motor skills aren't developed yet. They're trying to shove that square in the triangle, and you're like, come on, stupid. Like, you know, it's really easy. Like, just move it this way. It goes right there. <laughs> and that's what we do, though. That's what we do. We try to fix that void in our heart. Ecclesiastes says God has set eternity in the hearts of men. We have an eternal void. There's a shape in our heart, an eternal shape that God has placed in us that only he can fill, which is why he says, come back to me, all who are weary and labor, for I will give you rest. But we try to fit something else in there, the deceitfulness of wealth, one shape, the, the love and praise of others, another shape, and it's not fitting. And we get tired, and we get stressed, and we get anxious, and we get depressed, and then it's a cycle, and we keep finding other shapes when the one shape is right here all along. He's got the word of God for us. It's life-giving. It's fulfilling. And it's real. Why do we keep doing that? And he doesn't say, you stupid. You know, he doesn't call us that. He says, come to me. Let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, I will make you white as snow. That's the kind of love he has. He says, even though your soil isn't worthy of a seed, I'm going to give you seed anyway because I love you enough to give you a chance. We allow these other voices to dictate how we feel about ourselves instead of listening to God's voice and what his word says. And I call this particular type of Christian the social Christian or the people pleasers. It's another scary place to be. John 12, 43, very short verse says, For they loved human praise more than praise from God. <laughs> that could describe a lot of us, myself included. We are all meant to hear, well done, but from God and not from people alone. People pleasers never bother to raise the standards of holiness around them. These types of Christians, people pleasers, never bother to raise the standard of holiness around them. Why would they? They've done enough just to fit in, just to look like a Christian, just to be a part of the group. Why would they want to raise the bar? They're not bothered that the general standard of holiness is so low in the church. They like the present standard. They like the status quo because they've already conformed their religious reputation around it. They don't want to have to change it and make it better and, and pray a little bit more and actually start to love God. They don't like to hear this kind of message. I don't like to hear this kind of message because it requires a response from me. But this is the gospel. And anything less is not the gospel message. Jesus said his strongest words of judgment to those who had a reputation for being pious and righteous and holy. But it was their hypocritical spirit that roused his soul to anger, righteous and holy anger for their sins against God. 
He saw through their fake fronts of piety, their hypocritical spirits, and he thundered over their heads the terrible words, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Those are Jesus' words to the Pharisees of his day. They were two-faced. They were duplicitous. They put on a front for their followers, and all the while they were dead inside. You whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers. That's what he called them. Others came to him and said, Lord, Lord, look at what we've done for you. We've cast out demons, we've prophesied in your name, and he said, depart from me, you evildoers, for I never knew you. He doesn't want these actions, he doesn't want these grandiose signs if they're not accompanied by actually knowing him and actually loving him. Again, he doesn't care about the what, he cares about why. That is the focus of all of this. That's why Jesus takes all the 613 laws of the prophets and say, two, love one another, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus doesn't say, go to church every Sunday, do this, do that, do this. He doesn't give us a checklist. Checklists are easy. They don't require real thought or effort. He wants a relationship with us. He says, love one another and love the Lord. That's it. And all the other things will follow. If we are to be true Christians, we must clear the soil of all the thorny distractions we have. We must cut out anything that keeps us and chokes out the word of God. If that means deleting social media or canceling Netflix or selling your Xbox, is God not worthy of such a sacrifice? If it means going up to a friend and apologizing for our wrongdoing, did Jesus not call us to repentance of our sins? If it means sacrificing the plan of our future and letting go of that control we love to have over what's going to happen to us, are not God's ways higher than our ways? This is just scripture. The fourth soil, the good one, yay. The good soil. I like to just categorize this with our classic faithful, hungry, and teachable. I think the soil is good. It says the soil falling on good, seeds falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one producing a crop yielding 100, 60, or 30 times. I think that in order to be good soil, to clear out the distractions and things that we've mentioned, we must be faithful, hungry, and teachable. And the faithfulness is just simply obedience to God, as we've talked about, the why, and trusting him over ourselves. We must be hungry. We must desire to read his word, that seed that he's given us. Let us do something with it. Let us read it. Let us meditate on it. Let us spend time in prayer. And let us be teachable. We are in a community of fellow believers. There is so much wisdom to be gleaned from the people sitting in the row next to you and in front of you, behind you. And who are we to neglect that? We must be teachable and come humbly to listen to the voice of God in others. There is so much wisdom to be learned. Let us not be foolish and waste our time. And that's it. You might think, wow, he spent a lot of time talking about the bad soils and how selfish we are. And it's true, I did. And I spent like 10 seconds on the good soil. I'm like, wow, one slide on good soil, like 10 on bad soils. But here's the thing. It's not my role to describe to you the good soil. That's the role of small group. That is why we are in small groups, that you can tend to your soils together. You can get rid of the distractions, 
and you can come together and say, how can I be more like the good soil? That is why we do what we do. I can't tell you to be good and you just do it. That is not how Jesus operated. He operated in a small group of people who lived life together and slowly but surely they looked like good soil. It took time. There were plenty of ups and downs, lots of downs. But eventually, they were equipped with the Holy Spirit and they went out and changed the world for the better. And if that's not our motive, then it should be to go out into all the lands and preach the word of God. In small group, we want to live life together, unpacking that hardness of our hearts that we all have at least a little bit of, pulling out those rocks so that we can put down good roots that can grow and clear out the thorny distractions that we all fall victim to. If it means in your small group you say, both of us, we, we cancel this together, or you know, we stop doing this, or we start doing this, let us read the book of John together, because I've never opened the gospel before. That, that's what small group is for, that you can tend to your soil so that it becomes good soil, so that it can reproduce. We're so often plugged into the world that we feel like we have to be informed and give an opinion on everything that happens, but we do all this while neglecting the one thing that we really have control over, the one thing that really matters, and that's our own hearts and our own soil. It's much easier to look out and point out at what is wrong than to look in and examine the true condition of our hearts, our own selfishness, the reason why our soil isn't yet good. So as we close, let us remember with great joy and thanksgiving the fact that God has sown his seed for all of us in the hopes that we can return to him. So let us honestly examine our hearts and find the areas where our soil is not yet good, where we have not yet trusted God with our finances or our future or our relationships, where we have not yet been hungry for his word, and where we have not yet been teachable. And then let us feel free to physically get out of our seats and we can come together to the altar before God or in your small group, because that's why we are here. You can talk to the person who brought you, your small group leader, and we can share one another where we have the ability to grow together. That's the whole goal of community, is that whatever struggle you're facing or whatever thing that is plaguing you, that's just keeping you, you are not alone in that. The devil has no new tricks. It's been seen and done before. And we are all falling victim to that in some way. So you can begin to prepare your hearts so they can become to look like the good soil that God has intended for us so we can reproduce his word. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. We pray all of these things in your beautiful name. Amen.